really emotional. I came close to crying, actually. Uh, <laughs> I don't even like Friends that much. There's just something about it that's like nostalgic, isn't there? And I think one of the reasons that people re-watch it so much as it is, it's perfect Netflix TV. Like you can be folding the washing or whatever, and it's on in the background. You don't need to know the storylines. You don't really need to know where we've left off. You just kind of stick on an episode at random and have a good time. And uh, I think, you're wondering why I'm saying this, I think we sometimes read the Bible like we watch Friends. Right? So you're like, I really, I want to watch something. I've got 20 minutes. So it's random episode of Friends. Find something funny. I'm in the morning. I've got 15 minutes before I'm leaving for work. I flick open my Bible at random and find something, anything encouraging to get my teeth into. In other words, even in the church, we tend to approach the Bible as a kind of take what you like, lucky dip, flick it at random and hope that something sticks out. I mean, think about the way we view the Psalms, they're great. The way we view numbers, not so much. Jesus' words about love are inspiring and heartwarming. His words about hell or money, we flick past. It's like the kind of season nine or ten episodes of Friends. They're not worth it. Rubbish. We treat the Bible like we treat any other book. I'll take what's helpful to me and I'll leave what I don't like, what I don't agree with. In recent years, the uh, Bible teacher Andy Stanley uh, over in America and many others like him have uh, called on Christians to, quote, unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. The question for us this afternoon, as we continue looking at the Bible, what it is, why we trust it, why we put it right at the center of our life together as a church, the question is this, can we trust all of the Bible? Or should we unhitch ourselves, so to speak, from the bits that don't really fit with what we want to hear? We're going to continue on from last week when Johnny shared with us what our Bibles are, how they were put together, how they were made. And we're going to move on from there to think about how the Bible is held together. Johnny showed us how the Bible is put together. Today, I want to show us how it is held together. So here's where we're going. Uh, we are going to start by looking at what it even means that the Bible is held together. Held together by God, held together around Jesus. And then we'll finish by looking at how this matters for how we as a church live and worship together. Well, let me just pray for us quickly before we start. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it is true. We thank you that when we read it, when we come underneath your word and listen to it, Lord, that we are hearing the very words of God. So I just pray today, Lord, as we hear you speak, that we wouldn't harden our hearts, but we would come in worship and joy and find life in you. God, we praise you that you're here. Pray that what I say that is helpful and true would cling to our hearts. And what I say that is distracting or not true, Lord, would it fade into the background as we see and behold and worship Jesus today. Amen. Amen. Well, as I say, Johnny kicked us off last week by looking at why we can trust the Bible as a, a historically reliable, uh, spiritually true document. 
thousands of manuscripts from remarkably early dates, copied incredibly accurately over the years, written by eyewitnesses and historians that we can trust. I don't know about you, but Johnny helped me to be reminded that I can be confident that the scriptures are God's words. And I thought the evidence that he laid out was overwhelming. But to stop there, to stop at, well, the Bible's a historically reliable document, would be to place ourselves above God's word and look down on it as judges of God's truthfulness and reliability. We've got to take a step back from that place, position ourselves in a place of trust, not skepticism. And to do that, we need to not start with history, not even with what the Bible says about itself as a document, but with what God says about who He is. So to start, and just like last week, we're going to jump around at the Bible today, but we're going to start in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So if you have a Bible, would you turn there? And what we're going to read here is just a short verse. It's what the ancient Jews called the Shema. And this was sort of a kind of common prayer for the Jewish people, that they would speak this over one another regularly, kind of like the ancient Lord's Prayer. So here it is, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your being and all your might. I want us to really see the kind of significance of that first part. Listen, Israel, the Lord is one. Now, on the surface, that sounds simple and actually unrelated to what we're talking about, and you might be wondering why we've just read that. But in many ways, the Shema is this kind of foundational statement of who God is and what He is up to in the world. And by extension, it shows us what His Word is like. So, what does it mean that God is one? Well, students of the Bible have long spoke about God's simplicity and His unchangeability. Now, what does it mean that He's simple? It doesn't mean that He's daft. It doesn't mean He's easy to understand. I mean, something like this. If you took me apart, you would find kidneys, a heart, toes, veins, lungs, and nose. If you took my personality apart, you would find love, fear, you would find all these different parts of me that add up together to make me, me. Sometimes those parts fight against each other. So my mind wants to go to the gym. Yeah, my body doesn't. My body wants to watch TV. And, and I'm at war with myself. Or I'm made up of all these different things. I am not one. I am lots of different things added together to make this. God, on the other hand, can't be broken down into parts. It's not like God is a kind of amalgamation of love, justice, mercy, wrath, and goodness that all join together and balance one another out to make a God that is palatable enough. God is one. His characteristics can't be at war with one another. In the words of James Dolezal, all that is in God is God. Because he doesn't have many parts, because he is one essence, fully God, from eternity and for eternity, that means that he also can't change. God is simple, but he is also unchangeable. 
Now, our lives are marked by change. Every day we change. But God is and always will be the same. The God who is is the God. The God who was is the God who is. And the God who is is the God who is to come. So God is simple and he is unchanging. In other words, the Lord is one. And what is the implication of that in the verse we just read? Listen, O Israel, the Lord is one. Listen. The implication of God's oneness is that we should hear and obey him. Now, why is that a natural implication? Well, if God is one, and if God is unchanging, then that means that his words are one, and his words are unchanging. If the Bible can be trusted as God's words, like Johnny showed us last week, and if God is utterly unchanging, then the Bible itself must be unified. Every dot, every sentence, every paragraph has to be preaching the same message. The God who is one holds together his word as one. This is remarkable when we look at the scope of the Bible. Contrary to kind of popular opinion, the Bible's not just one book written by one guy. It is more like a library written by dozens of authors across thousands of years in different contexts about different things in three languages, and yet there is incredible consistency across the 66 books that we call the Bible. Let me give you just one example of a, a prophecy that's made in Scripture that's later fulfilled and uh, that we can verify historically. So uh, in Isaiah 44, uh, we read about a man called Cyrus. And uh, God tells Isaiah, the prophet, that this man Cyrus will say to Jerusalem, you shall be built, and to the temple your foundation shall be laid. In other words, Cyrus will speak the words that will allow Jerusalem to be built. At its simplest, that's what that's saying. Now, if you know your history, you'll know that in 538 BC, King Cyrus of Persia permitted the Israelites that were in exile to leave, return to Jerusalem, and rebuild their temple. Here uh, is what the book of Ezra says about this. It says, in the first year of King Cyrus, King Cyrus issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem. Let the house be rebuilt, the place where they offered sacrifices, and let the foundations of it be firmly laid, its height 60 cubits, and its width 60 cubits. If you were to go down to London and uh, go to the British Museum, you could find this actual edict. Uh, This is a historical event uh, that is documented in museums, uh, is not a made-up Bible story. You might be thinking, sure, Isaiah was maybe just a good political pundit who thought, well, there's something brewing here. I'm going to make a prediction. Or maybe Isaiah was written retrospectively to make it look like he had guessed the future. But we know from solid historical evidence that Isaiah's ministry took place between 740 and 680 BC. Cyrus set Israel free in 538 BC. That means that the book of Isaiah states by name the man that will bring Israel out of exile. Before that man was born, 
and before Israel were even in exile. There is no other way to account for that kind of consistency and accuracy other than the God who is one has given us his word, unchanging, true, and consistent. In the words of Jesus, my word cannot be broken. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is one. The Bible is a unified, grand narrative of who God is and what he is doing in the world. But what is that grand narrative? What is the Bible centered around? What is it all about? Let's move on and see how the Bible is held together around Jesus. Now, uh, Abby and I were in Harris a month or two ago, and uh, her dad asked if I wanted a game of golf, which for a son-in-law is like a big moment. And uh, (laughs) I put it off for a few days, and then I thought, this is very obvious that I just don't want to play golf with you. And so we went for the game of golf, and uh, I thought, you know, I can hold my own, I'll be okay. And I was awful. It was the worst I've ever played, like genuinely. Whatever club I was using, it was like shanking it. I missed the ball a couple of times. Like when I did make contact, the ball was flying over the green. Like I just had no control. And uh, it was awful. It was really an embarrassing experience. Uh, I I have all these clubs at my disposal, and I can't even use any of them to get that ball in that hole. Now, a good golfer, by contrast, would use all these different clubs at his disposal to to get the ball in the hole, right? He might drive long. He might flop it high. He might uh, use a putter when he's on the green. Golfer has... All these clubs, he might use a putter when he's on the green. Uh, a golfer has all these clubs, and uh, they all ultimately aim towards the one thing, getting the ball in the hole. Now, you wouldn't have known it watching me, but that is the aim of golf. And uh, the Bible and its kind of unity in diversity is much the same. Many different books aiming in the same direction. But what is the whole? What is the purpose of the Bible. Well, Jesus and after him, the writers of the New Testament make this radical claim that the whole of the Bible is about Jesus. The bag of clubs containing poetry, narrative, prophecy, story, apocalypse, letters, gospel, and history, they all contribute to the main point of the Bible, that we might see and savor Jesus Christ. We can see this first by looking at the claim that Jesus himself and then his apostles afterwards, the claims that they make about the Bible. These are going to come up on the screen behind me. Here's just a few, and uh, we'll just run through them before we pull uh, on a common thread. So first, John chapter 5, Jesus says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. Then Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. That's what Jews called the Old Testament. It was like in a shorthand. I've not come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come to fulfill them. Then Luke 24, Jesus has just been resurrected and he's walking down the path with two of his followers. And Luke says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them 
what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. The subtext there is that there are things concerning Jesus in the Old Testament. Acts 2.25, Peter is preaching before thousands of people, and he references one of the Psalms written by David, and he says, for David says this about Jesus. And he goes on, in other words, the Psalm that David wrote a thousand years ago is about a carpenter in first century uh, Jerusalem. And then Hebrews 1.8, about the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And again, that's a quote from the Psalms. Jesus is the point of the Psalms. Lastly, Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians 10 that Israel drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. If you know the story of Israel's desert wandering, they were given water out of a rock to keep them going. And Paul says that rock was Christ. Now, we could show many more examples of the New Testament claiming that every word of the Old Testament is about Jesus. In fact, the New Testament contains around 900 allusions to the Old, over 200 direct quotations. And that's because Jesus doesn't replace or supersede what God had said before. He brings it into fulfillment. Like a newly conceived baby has all the DNA that makes it human. At the moment of conception, all the DNA it will ever have is there. The Old Testament shows up in embryo, but Jesus comes and shows us in full. In other words, uh, as the Apostle Paul put it, all of God's promises find their yes and their amen in Jesus. Now, we don't see this. Uh, anywhere more clearly than in my favorite book of the Bible, Matthew. Matthew's favorite word is fulfilled. And uh, through the Gospel of Matthew, there's over 65 references to the Old Testament. For Matthew, Jesus is the one who fulfills every word that God has spoken. Let's do a a whistle-stop tour of how Matthew sees Jesus as the fulfillment of God's word in this one area. How is Jesus, for Matthew, the fulfillment of the Old Testament story of the Exodus? Now, if you're unfamiliar with the Bible, the Exodus is what the Bible calls the events leading up to and after uh, Israel's crossing of the Red Sea. And so, that includes Pharaoh, who kills every Israelite firstborn. It includes Moses, who escaped uh, that Uh, genocide. It includes God's plagues. It includes the Passover. It includes the desert wandering that Israel went on. It includes the giving of the Ten Commandments uh, from Mount Sinai. So, how does Matthew see Jesus as the fulfillment of the Exodus? Well, in Matthew 2, there's an evil leader who's killing every firstborn son that Israel have. And Jesus flees to Egypt to escape Like Moses, Jesus is spared. Then uh, Joseph and Mary bring Jesus home. And Matthew quotes Hosea chapter 11, Out of Egypt did I call my son. Then Matthew fast forwards to Jesus' baptism, where he goes through the water just like Israel went through the Red Sea. And he hears the voice of God, You are my beloved son. From there, Jesus heads into a desert and is tempted by the devil. And it is no coincidence that every time Jesus is tempted, he responds 
with the words of Moses from Deuteronomy calling Israel to obey. Where Israel failed, Jesus succeeds. Then he leaves the desert, climbs a mountain, and says, I have come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Just as Moses went up Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments, Jesus climbs a mountain and gives God's word to his disciples, not on tablets of stone, but from the, the, from the mouth of God himself. The first five chapters of Matthew's gospel retells the Exodus narrative so that we will know one thing. Jesus is the better Moses. He's the better Israel. He's the one who will do what nobody could. He is the point of it all. As we zoom out, we see that the New Testament considers Jesus to be the answer to every question that the Old Testament posed. Jesus is the true temple of God's presence, God himself living among us. He's the Passover lamb come to take away the sins of the world. Jesus is the ark that Noah hid in to escape the flood, and in him we go safely through death. Jesus is the rock that provided water in the desert and the one who gives spiritual water to our thirsty souls. He is wisdom crying aloud in the streets. Jesus is the better Abraham and Moses and David. He is the God of Genesis come to recreate the world. He is the God of Exodus, the one who brings us out of slavery. He is the God of Leviticus come to make a way for his people to live in his presence. He is the meaning of it all. The Bible is held together by God and around Jesus, our only Savior. So the Bible's held together by God around Jesus. Lastly, the Bible is held together for us, for the church. Now, Ian's going to finish our series next week, and he's going to dig more into practically what does it mean to uh, center our lives around the Bible. But quickly, here are three implications for our life as a church as we look to place the Bible right at the middle of our worship and life together. First, we assume a posture of trust. Let's be honest with each other. The Bible is tricky. If you do treat the Bible like friends and you flick it open at random, you'll probably come across a passage that you don't really know what to do with. There's a lot of difficult things in this book. There's some things that seem to contradict each other. There's some passages that are hard to understand. But in faith... We choose not to approach the Bible as skeptics, looking to undermine God, but as worshippers, submitted to God, willing to listen to Him. Yeah, that doesn't mean that we don't question anything, but it does mean this, and don't take my word for it. Here is a promise. If you approach the Bible with a posture of faith and trust, you will not find any seeming contradiction or difficulty that will shipwreck your faith. 99% of the time when we come and we find something that doesn't seem to add up, 99% of the time it's us that's missing something, not the Bible. And in the 1% that we can't quite figure out, we choose to trust God. 
we take him at his word as the God who never changes, whose words will remain forever, then we have to choose to take him at his word, no matter where it leads us. We come to the Bible and we let it examine us, not vice versa. Number one, we assume a posture of trust. Number two, we believe all of God's words. Now, if you've been around Glasgow Grace for a while, you'll know that our preference is to get into a book and to preach through it chapter by chapter, verse by verse. We do that because we want to hear God's words in God's way. We want to let God speak to us in the way that he originally intended. And we do that because we believe that if all of the Bible is God's word, then every word of it is worth listening to. In the words of Paul, all scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching. That means that sometimes we're going to find ourselves rubbing up against difficult things, things that we don't want to hear. But we refuse to only listen to what we like. St. Augustine said this, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it is not the gospel that you believe, but yourself. At Glasgow Grace, we are ruthlessly committed to the whole counsel of God's word. We are ruthlessly committed to believing the gospel, not ourselves. The Holy Spirit never wastes his breath. God himself felt fit to speak, then we had better sit up and take notice. We assume a posture of trust, we believe all of God's words, and we don't make it about us. And I couldn't go a week without quoting C.S. Lewis, so here he is right at the end. Uh, This is from The Problem of Pain. C.S. Lewis says, Adam and Eve wanted some corner in the universe of which they could say to God, this is our business, not yours, but there is no such corner. They wanted to be nouns, but they were and eternally must be mere adjectives. They wanted to be nouns, but they were made to be adjectives. A noun is the point of a sentence. An adjective's only job is to make the noun clearer. If the Bible is about Jesus, then that means that it is not about you. The Bible has some things to say about you, but it is not primarily about you. When we place ourselves at the center of the Bible, We are like an adjective pretending to be a noun. We're like an extra in a Hollywood film who can't get the gist that this film is Leonardo DiCaprio's, not his. He doesn't even speak. His whole job is to make the main character look glorious. When we read the Bible, just like in everything else, we want to make much of Jesus. We want to make less of ourselves. See, when we, when we come to the Bible in Glasgow Grace, we want to see Jesus in 4K. We want to see him as clearly as we can. 
We want to leave with our eyes, not on ourselves, but on the glory and majesty of God. When we come, we don't want to just look for a kind of crumb of encouragement that might just get us just through the day. We want to find Jesus and know that when we find him, we won't stumble through life. We'll live lives of joy and love. We want to be like John the Baptist who saw Jesus and said, I must decrease so that he can increase. Listen, some of us are here and we are being crushed under the weight of making everything about ourselves. I don't, I don't know the ins and outs of your life, but I do know that many of us here have made ourselves the main point of everything and are being crushed under the weight of it. You weren't made for that. You weren't made for it. It's like the earth doesn't have the glory to keep the, to keep the solar system in gravity around it. Only the sun has the glory for that. You were not made to be the one that receives glory. You are not made to be the one that it is all about. The invitation to you as you come and hear God's word is this, step back, take a breath, and behold Jesus. He is sufficient. He is enough. Step back. You are not the point. Jesus is. We assume a posture of trust. We believe all of God's words. And we don't make it about us. The Bible is more than a series of unconnected stories, like in a sitcom for the spiritual. It is not a book that we can take what we like from. It is a drama, but it is a drama that leads us not just to some nice principles or some nice stories, but to the source of life himself. The Bible is held together by God around Jesus and for the church. I'm going to ask the band to come back up just now. And uh, just before we uh, go into a time of worship, um, would you stand with me actually just now?